This is Casper Citroen from the Hotel Elise, East 54th Street, home of the Monkey Bar and the Pisces Restaurant. My guest is Edmund Keeley, elect, newly elected president of the Pan American Center. Uh, welcome to the program, and, and though we haven't talked about Penn in some time, I think we should probably uh, start at the beginning and tell those people that aren't uh, aware of exactly what Penn is and what it's trying to do. And congratulations on your uh, elevation from the board, shall we say. <laughs> Thank you very much. Penn uh, does so many things that it's hard to know where to start, but I'm what I'll mention, first of all, the things that excite me most because that's probably where whatever passion I have for public activities uh, exists will go. And, and I'm thinking primarily of problems of censorship, of writers who are in trouble, of writers who need assistance of one kind or another, either because of being disadvantaged by health or income or the problems that all writers have uh, in dealing with the commercial market and other things. Those are the things that really interest me most about Penn, but that's only part of its activity. I think it's the major part of it, both on the national level and on the international level. And those are two really different enterprises, which I could talk about a little later. But then we do a number of other things. We have a, a literacy program. Uh, we have a program that uh, takes writers into the schools to try and encourage young people to get interested in literature. We have a program for writers in prison to allow them to express themselves. That's the one that most of us are most familiar with. The writers in prison, yeah. yeah. And we have any number of events, 20 and sometimes more events a year, that take up uh, all aspects of the relations between writers and other writers, between writers and publishers, between writers and agents, and even uh, national issues having to do with the politics of writing and that sort of thing. So it's a very broad spread of, and I probably left some things out because I don't have any notes in front of me, I'm just talking off the top of my head, but it, it has a variety of activities, and to me the heart of it is to uh, exercise every effort to protect writers when writers need protection. And that applies to our own country, although we're a free country in many ways, and we're not an example of, by any means, of the horrors that one finds in other countries where writers are actually in jail and uh, are incarcerated for things they write or say, a sentence here, a sentence there. We do have some problems in this country that uh, mean we have to remain vigilant all the time about how writers are subject to other less mm -hmm. dramatic forms of censorship. Edmund Keeley, besides uh, being a novelist, uh, you're also known as a translator. Is this for one or more languages? It's for one language, modern Greek, that obscure language that uh, well, I think is less obscure. You went to school in Greece, didn't you? I went point? to school in Greece uh, as a child, but uh, I went to a German school. This was just before the Second World War, and I promptly uh, forgot all the German that I'd learned there, mm -hmm. uh, partly as a deliberate act of uh, rejecting that school, which I didn't like very much. I've just written a novel in which that period of my life sort of figures centrally. But I also forgot the Greek I knew as a child, and I had to pick that up again. I stored it in America by talking to cooks and restaurant owners and taxi drivers. Anybody could speak Greek. But that became the language that I, I was really in love with and went back to rediscover after the war, and I've been going back uh, to Greece every year since the war. I studied the old-time Greek in college only because I didn't want to take biology. Well, you're better educated than I am. I've been trying to study the ancient Greek language for years, and 
I'm never going to get it right. <laughs> well, there's actually n very, very little relationship. There's a relationship, but it's uh, the kind that can confuse you almost as much as it can help you. I mean, I can read a, a page of ancient Greek and think I understand every word in it or a good deal, of the, a good number of the words in it, but I really don't. Same probably would apply to somebody trying to read the modern Greek text who knew ancient Greek. But um, the uh, uh, a recent book you wrote was about the George Polk affair. Yes. And uh, perhaps you could uh, summarize that a little bit for us, because many of the people don't remember it. I remember it vividly, though. Oh, well, I'm glad. It's <laughs> the Polk Award, actually. That's right. right. The Polk Award was established after his death in his memory. The Polk affair is a to me a fascinating affair because it happened so early in the period of America's role as an international uh, force. It it's right about the time of the Marshall Plan. That's right. It came right after the Truman Doctrine was declared. The Truman Doctrine was declared in 1947. Polk was murdered in the summer of 1948. And the Truman Doctrine is what really set the United States up as a kind of uh, arbiter of problems having to do with the, the West and the East and particularly between America and Russia at that time, although it's spread out all over the world now. And Polk, Polk's murder became a sort of microcosm of the problems that America had to face assuming that role. I think it uh, rather misplayed its role initially, and I think this case shows it, and I believe that by extension it becomes uh, an indication of what went wrong later in things like the Vietnam War and so on and so forth. That's probably a broad extension of uh, what I write in the book, but I'm willing to sort of project that extension. The case itself was, for my money, simply unsolved. And what interests me about it, since it was unsolved, and since I think it's going to be very unlikely that it ever is solved, it seemed to me uh, finally strange and then really outrageous that a scapegoat was found who seemed to be satisfactory both to the Greeks and to the British, and to the Americans, and to the American press, mm -hmm. a scapegoat who was, it seems to me, unquestionably innocent. And the documents demonstrate that. And the man, uh, though still alive, has never been exonerated for what he had, the role he was made to play. And the way he was made to play that role seemed to me to be uh, scandalous. So that's why I got interested in the story. Well, when you say it will never be solved, we have a couple of others like that. For instance, the. Uh, the Chilean one was just mm -hmm. solved after all these years. L'Atelier, is that the way you right. I guess. <laughs> and and the one then you've got, you've got the uh, attack on the Pope, which has never been solved, That's really. Right. I think the reason it won't be solved is because uh, it was covered over so quickly after it happened that there is no solid evidence. The only evidence we really have is the body and the way the body was uh, dressed at the time it was discovered and the bullet hole in the back of the head, that's the concrete evidence. Nothing else mm -hmm. has turned up, even though uh, many people have tried to work on turning it up either through secondary evidence or in initially through investigation. Mm -hmm. Of course, the investigation was a rather phony investigation, so you can say that the, the cover-up of the, of the murder began almost from the day the body was discovered. In fact, I think it did begin from the day, probably even before. Uh, Years ago, when I was doing my program, I think 25 years ago, from the Pierre Hotel, Penn used to meet every week in the room right next to where yes, I was indeed. broadcasting from. And uh, I got to know everybody in, in those days. And one of the persons that came every week and was not very successful was none other than Jersey Kosinski. 
and I wondered if you had any uh, uh, idea of what was behind all this recent unpleasant end to him. No, I really don't. Uh, and I've talked to several people who I thought might have some idea of what's behind it, and I can't find anybody. He was most active in Penn. He was active in Penn initially. In fact, I got interested in Penn because of Jerzy Pazinski. Oh, really? Uh, back in the uh, early 70s. He really put it on the map, uh, I think, out of a legitimate passion and because he himself had been involved in matters of uh, brutality against writers and brutality against others in, in Poland, which he'd escaped from. And he brought to Penn a kind of international dimension that I thought uh, at that time made it much more interesting than simply the club it seemed to have been. Now, that's not fair to have called it a club. It wasn't ever quite a club the way other people thought, because it was doing a lot of good things, yeah. promoting translation right. and other things. But Kosinski really put it on the map, and he put it on my map so that I joined the association. And then he uh, ceased to be president, withdrew, and so on and so forth. But in the initial stages, he was very important in creating a public image for Penn, partly because he was famous himself, partly because he was very active in promoting what Penn believed in in those days, and he was an international figure of a kind. And I think since then, Penn has uh, grown and grown and become uh, even more internationally uh, respectable now, if you want to put it that well, way. Arthur Miller helped a lot. Arthur Miller still helps. Mm -hmm. He's never ceased to uh, work for Penn, although he doesn't come to meetings. Uh, why should he? <laughs> He travels, he helps right. the association in many ways by lending his name to things, right. writes letters, goes yeah. places, even takes trips uh, for Penn and, and investigates mm -hmm. territories. So he's, yes, he was absolutely crucial early on. Edmund Keeley, uh, you're the only person I've ever met that was born in Damascus. <laughs> <laughs> Give us I'm the, the only person I've ever met who was born in Damascus. You, you look very American to me. <laughs> Well, my father was a diplomat, and he was I assigned to Damascus at one point. He was married in Constantinople. Foreign service? Foreign service. That's what took me to Greece when I was young. It took me to Canada. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness the war brought me back to America when I was 11 years old, so that I became American enough to be an American writer. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I bless fate for having allowed me to do that. God knows what I would have become otherwise. Well, was your father in Damascus or in Greece when you went to school in Greece? He was in Greece. He was in Damascus... Uh, while I was alive for only three years. Then we went to Canada, then came to this country, then went to Greece in 1936. And it was the 1936 to 1939 period that uh, I was in Greece as a child. We came back on home leave in 1939. The war occurred, aura furniture, household effects, and my whole childhood was put in Greece, in Greece, in lock, stock, and was locked up and uh, hidden away. And uh, I went back in 1947 to rediscover it. My father and brother actually went back earlier. He was reassigned to Athens in 46. What did he do during the war? He was in Antwerp, mostly, uh, as, again, a, a foreign service officer while the buzz bombs were going over. And uh, He was also in the State Department as head of what was called the... <coughs> excuse me. What was called the Special uh, Operations Division, and that had to do with... Uh, refugee problems primarily. I don't know if you remember there was a Gripsholm exchange of prisoners with uh, Germany, that is people who had been civilians held in German prison camps were transferred to the United States and reverse happened uh, during the war. My father was in charge of that and then he was in charge of the refugee camps in this country and that sort of thing. And then he went to Antwerp uh, to open the consulate there in order to prepare, I guess, for what they hoped would be the end of the war. But the problem was that those bu buzz bombs started coming over, and it was quite a terrifying experience for him. Mm -hmm. I, he never quite got over that. Yeah. Uh, some years ago, you went to Cambodia, didn't you? Or ah, let's see. 
That it would be accurate to say I went to Cambodia, but it would be cheating to suggest that I actually went in there and saw what was going on. I was writing a book about the fall of Phnom Penh mm. and about the refugee camps on the Thai-Cambodia border. Mm -hmm. And it was a, an experience that interested me very much because my brother had been also a diplomat, uh, like my father, had been, uh, along with the ambassador, the last person to come out of Cambodia carrying the flag at the time we evacuated Cambodia, the Americans left, that is. And I talked to my brother about that experience and about what the whole Cambodian experience meant to him. And I'd learned a great deal from that, but I also found that uh, he was reluctant, really, to talk about it in detail. So I decided I would write the book that my brother uh, might have written had he had the time and not been reassigned to other duties to write. The problem was that I didn't know Cambodia. So I went back and uh, traveled through Thailand and went to all the refugee camps along the border and w actually went over into Cambodia. Uh, not secretly, because some of those refugee camps are planted in Cambodia, literally, in order for them to appear not to be in Thailand. That was during that period when that seemed to be a, a way of keeping them at bay. And it was a, a very moving experience for me to see that side of the issue. But what really was moving to me was to try and create, out of my imagination and on the basis of talking to people and other things, what the experience would be like to see your city taken over by what you considered hostile forces, watch that happen, and then be sent off into the countryside the way all the Phnom Penh residents were, and to go through that experience. And that is what I wanted to recreate, and that's what the novel really tries to do. What year was that? Uh, the novel came out in 1985. The years that I'm writing about are 75 to 82, 83 mm -hmm. in the novel itself. And they're all, it's all done from the point of view of a woman, which was also exciting to me. I noticed that you've translated poetry. Are you also a poet? No. You just translate poetry. I just translate poetry, that's right. I started out being a poet. I think uh, most novelists uh, at one time started out being poets because, of course, that's the real challenge. And fortunately, um, a teacher at school, R.P. Blackmer, a famous critic who himself was a poet, persuaded me really on the basis of one manuscript that I really was a, a prose writer rather than a poet. And I took his word, and from then on, uh, I gave up poetry and, and wrote fiction. But there's something very exciting about translating poetry. It gives you some of the high that writing poetry does without giving you all of the problems. Mm -hmm. And I love prose anyway. Prose is my medium, and that's, that's good enough for me. I, I don't want to be any better than a good Edmund prose Edmund Keeley, as the new president of Penn, what does your job consist of? Well, all those things that I mentioned earlier as functions of Penn uh, end up in part being a function of the president's, and along with the president, the executive committee's decision about what ought to get uh, priority, what ought to be given most attention to, and that always involves an agenda. What of these many operations uh, do we focus on during the next month, and what do we focus on in the long range? Uh, we now have a very substantial budget. Uh, it's over a million dollars a year. And a lot of this is already earmarked, some of it isn't, and we have to keep reviewing that to see that we're spending that money in the best possible way. That's uh, partly, on, uh, I would say, in large part on the domestic side. On the international side, which I think is a major part of Penn's activity and something that most people in this country don't know about because it doesn't get the same degree of publicity that some local things do, on the international front, our job is to go to congresses where we meet with other centers like ours and pass resolutions and debate issues that have to do with the problems of writers in countries where they're being mistreated or imprisoned or censored or whatever uh, that 
would be considered uh, within Penn's charter, and also to create a degree of international fellowship among writers. Uh, we have at least uh, two congresses a year, and I have to go to those. Not only have to, I like to. I mean, that's one part of the job that I really think is important and that I enjoy. I go as a delegate, and uh, we have at least one other delegate, and whenever we can, we have other writers uh, representing our, our center. And that activity is quite time-consuming. And in addition to that, we have what we call missions that we send out to various hotspots to investigate what's going on. We just tried to send one to Vietnam, for instance. We were turned down at the last minute. The visas were ready. Uh, our group was ready. This was going to be a mixed Russian and American enterprise. We were going to send two Russian writers and two or three American writers. And the Vietnamese canceled the visas at the last minute. We're still hoping that that will uh, change and that it'll reopen so that we can go back in the fall. And we're sending a, a mission to Kenya. We're going to have a, now we've just decided in the last couple of weeks, and this is the kind of decision a new president has to make, we decided to go to Cairo and look into what we can do about Middle East writers, a thing that uh, we haven't, uh, I think, put enough energy into. Takes me back to Damascus, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Edmund, how does a, um, a poet or a novelist uh, or a writer qualify to become a member of Penn? What does it cost them? The rules, which uh, have a degree of flexibility, although not a large degree, consist of having written two books that are considered to be uh, works of literature or works of substance. They don't have to be literary. They can be nonfiction. They can be anything of that kind. Two books and uh, seriousness of purpose. Mm -hmm. Or one book that has won a significant national prize. So if you're a young writer and you've won the Rome Prize or the National Book Award or the Penn Faulkner Prize or something like that, that automatically, or even if you got an honorable mention in that category, right. that would automatically qualify you. The rule is two books or more. Or if you're an editor, having worked uh, for five years or more supporting um, the literary side of the enterprise of publishing, or a publisher who's done the same thing, agents who've done the same thing, who have uh, tried to help writers who are substantial writers not only the commercial. And that's, uh, that's the membership. And once you're in, you have no obligation. Dues? Yeah, dues, but they're not large. We don't, uh, the dues, although they're a part of our income, are not nearly as substantial a part of our general budget as, say, the Authors Guild, which really depends very much on its dues. Mm -hmm. uh, the dues also can be paid for out of a fund if there's reason to, uh, claim that you cannot afford to pay the dues. That rarely happens, because I don't think the dues are that large, $60, $70. I can't remember now. I established the dues a couple years ago, but I've forgotten what they are. <laughs> Edmund Keeley, one last controversial subject. What about all the infighting about the, uh, the social versus the literary people in Penn and raising money? It's hit page six and other publications all during the year. Well, now you've really put me on the spot, but I, I'll come clean on my feeling about that. I think that was a, an unfortunate controversy. I can understand uh, why people have a certain a degree of reticence about the relationship between writers and people who are society figures and so on and so forth. But I think in the particular case that applies to Penn, uh, Gayford Steinberg was very helpful to us. She was very intelligent in the way she uh, brought her wisdom and her help to the organization without imposing mm -hmm. 
in any way on our uh, operations, and we were very uh, careful to keep distinct in this kind of enterprise what was our function and what was her function. And I thought she kept those lines uh, solidly and well, and I was very disappointed. I, I only met her once uh, to discuss what she might do. We were setting up a new foundation, and she was going to be the main force in that foundation to provide a continuing sort of endowment for Penn, and er I thought she behaved very intelligently. So I was really disappointed to see that controversy cause her to withdraw her support. Now we have to uh, make up for that by finding other people who are going to support us, we hope, in the same way. And it's not going to be easy because she was ready to devote a lot of time to it. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not worried about people, however rich, however social, and all the rest, who are willing to support what our organization supports. If they uh, believe in our charter, believe in our purposes, and are willing to help us financially in other ways to support that, I'm for accepting their support. And I think uh, the idea of trying to analyze uh, the background of every single person who's going to give us that kind of support is not a task that we ought to be involved in, any more than we should be in investigating the background and uh, whatever skeletons may be in the closet of any writer who applies to be a member. Mm -hmm. We're out of time, uh, Edmund Ke Keeley. Thank you very much for talking as the newly elected president of the Pan American Center. Uh, you were on the board, have been for some time and you're an award-winning novelist and translator. Uh, thanks for coming by, and good luck to Penn. I thank you very much, both on behalf of myself and Penn, for giving me the time. Thank you. I have some wonderful news for chocolate lovers. My favorite ship, the legendary QE2, will sail on our fourth annual chocolate cruise this fall. It's the Nestle Chocolate Fantasy Cruise, a delicious escape from reality to savor the sweet sensations of luscious chocolate aboard QE2, the city at sea. If you've ever dreamed of taking a cruise, take this chocolate lover's word for it. This is the one for you, for it combines the luxurious QE2 lifestyle with a tantalizing daily menu of chocolate events. This Nestle chocolate cruise sails from New York September 21 to Canada and New England round trip five nights. It's offered only through Landry and Kling cruise travel reasonable rates. For their free brochure, call free 1-800-448-9002, toll free. That's 1-800-448-9002 for a chocolate fantasy you'll never forget or buzz me at 222-3333. This is Casper Citrin saying goodbye from the Hotel Elise, East 54th Street, New York City, home of the Pisces Restaurant and the Monkey Bar. <laughs>